So we started a series on Easter titled Jesus Always, Jesus Always. And we're going to go through the month of May and look at stories throughout the Bible that I hope that you would see the heart of God and it would inspire you, it would challenge you, but most importantly, it would transform your life. Uh, the story of Jesus, it's amazing. This, this book right here is not a book of principles. It's a book about a person named Jesus. 66 books written by over 40 authors. It's perfect. From Genesis, when man failed, the promise of Jesus came in right in the garden to the very end of this book in Revelation when Jesus comes back for his church. It's an amazing book that literally points always to Jesus and shows that Jesus is always up to something. I heard a pastor say one time, when you're down to nothing, God is up to something. And the resurrection shows us this. Can you imagine that moment where Jesus died and for three days, all of them thought it was over. But this series, the heart of this series, if you're gonna hear anything, is simply this. It's not over till it's over. If there are breath in your lungs, if you made it to church, if you are still standing, you need to know something. Famine is not final. Defeat is not final. The scoreboard, whatever it says, it's not final. There's still time on the board. And so my prayer today is that, that you would leave here and actually expect a lot from your God. That you would expect something that you never thought you could have. I grew up a Mariners fan in Seattle, Washington. Oh, you laugh because you didn't. Painful. 40 plus years. I've never seen them in the World Series. They're 20 years plus. They haven't made the playoffs. Have you ever noticed that uh, on your experience, it's kind of how you pray? So, so all my buddies who are Mariner fans, they literally just pray this. Oh, I pray we make the playoffs. That's it. Then I moved to the Bay Area and everybody's like, I pray we win the World Series. It's a different bar. It's a different expectation because of what they've experienced. Catch this real quick. Who, who's a soccer fan? Who loves the uh, U.S. soccer team? All seven of you, good for you, okay? It's true, let's just be honest, I hate soccer. Um, I literally hear people, I just pray we just make the World Cup. What a, what a terrible prayer. But I, I sometimes feel like, because maybe your experience has been defeat, that you just have these prayers, I just pray I just survive today. I just pray that this season would just be a little better. But then you read the word, and we're going to see Jesus, that your prayer should be way bigger than that. Hold on a second. My Jesus conquered the grave. He, he conquered death. I'm about to be praying that I conquer the same things. I'm going to pray that I win all the things God's called me to win, that I would inherit everything he's promised me to inherit, that the, this faith bar in my life, it's low because I put it in the world, but after this series in the next four weeks, your faith bar will not be in the world. It won't be in some, some, uh, some losing record. It will be in the undefeated record of Jesus Christ. Does that sound like a decent series? Let's go to work today. We bow your heads. Lord, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for what you're going to show us in your word. Oh, I pray right now that my words would fall to the floor. I pray that your words would soar. I pray that as I unpack the story of Ruth, that it would remind us that you are bigger, that you are bigger, that you are bigger than hate, that you are bigger than darkness, that you're bigger than failure, that you're bigger than a mess, you're bigger than division. Oh, you're bigger than the scoreboard. Oh, God, we need you. We need you. And everybody said? I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like life just doesn't make sense. You're like, what is going on in my life? Like, Lord, is there even a plan? Like, okay, I'm living life. I'm 36 years old. I'm, I'm looking through my 20s. I was like, okay, I was over here. Then I was over here. I was over here. Hey, give it up for Lacey real quick. How great was Lacey? I feel like my anointing just took a step down after the keys. That's how good you are. Uh, Lord, help me, help me. 
I love what John Piper says about the story of Ruth. And we're going to actually look at all four chapters. It's four chapters, small book in the Old Testament. It's a little story about a girl named Ruth that plays a big part in the story of Jesus. She becomes uh, a great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. Now, I was going to title this a ton of different things, uh, the story of Ruth. I was going to title it The Single Ladies, because Naomi and Ruth, and they're single. All the single ladies said, what? Yeah. Um, actually, kind of fascinating stat I found out this week. For the first time in America, we have more single people as adults than married people in America. Uh, and so this book actually centers around three single people, Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi. And, and what's fascinating is you look at Ruth and Naomi's story, context of the culture is when they lost their husband and, of course, father, Elimelech, you lost everything. You lost all hope. What I love about Jesus and what the resurrection shows us is that when we think we lost all hope and when we're down to nothing and when everybody's leaving us, that's when Jesus is showing up. And so John Piper says this about the story of Ruth. He says, taken as a whole story, the story of Ruth is one of those signs. It is written to give us encouragement and hope that all the perplexing turns in our lives are going somewhere good. They do not lead off a cliff. In all the setbacks of our lives of believers, God is plotting for our joy. That's John Piper. Now I'm going to give you Tyler's quotes. Ready? They're one sentence. Ready? Uh, Jesus makes miracles out of a mess. That's really what Ruth's going to show us. Another thing I wrote down simply is Jesus makes masterpieces out of messes. He's the God of the mess. I, I used to think that if I could get my life in order, if I could get everything great in my life, then God would do something mighty in my life. And it gets this horrible cycle of basically me trying to get my ducks in a row. And so either my ducks are in a row or my ducks are scattered or I can't even find my ducks. You know what I'm talking about? You ever have those days? Where did all my ducks go? And so you're freaking out. And, and so you think, but once I get all my ducks in a row, then God would use me. But what you realize is God will use you when your ducks are in a row, not in a row, or you can't even find your ducks. Actually, the Bible says to cast all your ducks on the Lord, a.k.a. cares. Come on. New translation. Let's go. I'll show you. This is a rhythm of God. This is why I want to look through all 66 books about people who felt like they were disqualified to actually have something mighty happen in their life that they didn't feel like they were the ones that actually God could do something through that was bigger than themselves. So here's just a list of people in the Bible that thought, man, you couldn't use me. And a lot of you, you may not say it out loud, but when you hear a message, you're always like, well, that's not for me. It's to be for somebody who's a little bit more talented than I am, somebody who has more years of their life, maybe who's somebody who's older than me, somebody who's younger than me, somebody who hasn't has, had the, the train wreck of a life that I've had. No, no, this is for you. This is how bigger God is. So Abraham, he was too old. He was too old. I hear today at our church a lot of time that people actually are nervous about how old they are now. There is no too old with Jesus. If you are alive, he can do something in your life. Another one is Jeremiah. He was too young. He said, but I'm a child. And, Jesus, and God says, don't say you're a child. You're old enough. If I say you're old enough, you're old enough for me to use you. Another one is Elijah. He was super emotional. All you emotional people out there, God can use you, okay? It's a great day. It's a horrible day. Elijah's like, yeah, we did it. Oh, my gosh, Jezebel. Okay, anyways, uh, Joseph. Joseph was betrayed. Job went bankrupt. Moses had a speech problem. Gideon was afraid. Samson was a womanizer. Rahab was a prostitute. The Samaritan woman had five husbands. She was getting married, unmarried, getting married, unmarried. Noah got drunk. Leah was ugly. That's actually was her. You got to think about this real quick. I was looking at the list. I, I, had, I paused and I started reading like the list. I, just literally, I literally read like, I, this is how I found this part. Of the, I've seen it on Facebook. I've seen it everywhere. You know, this is like one of those things like, God can use you too. And I've always read like, okay. Uh, but as I prepared this message, like, Lord, I actually want to take this to heart. But then I saw Leah. I was like, Leah was ugly. Now think about this in the Old Testament. You have to share somebody's physical stature if it's um, appropriate for the context. So Goliath, they had to say he's super tall. 
you know. And then, of course, in Zacchaeus, there was a part of it that had to talk about his height. Um, even um, Saul, head and shoulders. Leah, they literally said, hey, she was so ugly that God had to intervene and hook her up. This is her story. Let's keep going. Okay. Um, maybe it just made me laugh. I was like, oh, my gosh. I bet you Leah in heaven's like, really, that had to be in the word of God, the eternal word of God? Couldn't you say, like, I just had a bad hair day or whatever? No, you was ugly, girl. All right. I love this thing. This is real. This is real. It will tell on you in a good way. Um, here we go. Uh, Jacob was a cheater, David was a murderer, Jonah ran from God, Naomi was a widow, Peter denied Christ three times, Martha worried about everything, the disciples fell asleep while praying, and Paul was a Pharisee who persecuted Christians before becoming one. We're going to focus on Naomi. Naomi was a widow. We're going to take the, the visual look at Naomi's life, and a lot of time we center around Ruth and Boaz. Ruth because she's the one who actually births uh, uh, the kid that actually would be the great-great-grandfather to Jesus and actually to David. It's an amazing thing that a Moabite woman would actually be in the lineage of Jesus. If you study the Moabites, they were actually cursed for 10 generations. They were uh, from Lot, and basically they worshiped anything and everything but Jesus. Terrible culture. But God pulled her out of that culture and used her to have this amazing story. It's kind of like the Cinderella love story of the Bible. Because then Boaz is this rich man, single his name even means strong man, you know what I'm saying? So Boaz is in this story. And so we always kind of focus on Boaz and Ruth, but really the story starts with Naomi and ends with Naomi. And so I have seven points today. Yeah, seven. So buckle up. I have no idea. This could be an hour. All right. It is what it is. Uh, let's try to go for 30 minutes. Here we go. Uh, seven points is for you to go from famine to flourish. That's the title of the message. Famine to flourish. There's seven things Naomi did, and we're going to go over each one. Naomi needed to move. Naomi needed to find, uh, needed a friend. Uh, Naomi needed to see God's goodness again. Naomi hopes again. Naomi goes all in. She goes all in. I'm going for it. And last but not least, Naomi shows us it's not over till it's over. If you have your Bibles, open up to Ruth 1. Ruth 1. We're going to pick up in verse 6. So what happens is Elimelech and Ruth, two sons, they're in Bethlehem. Famine hits. Elimelech leaves to Moab because he can find provision. He goes to the wrong spot. God doesn't tell him to go to Moab, but he goes there anyways. Elimelech ends up dying. The two sons end up marrying two Moabite women. And the reason why all the guys will always want to marry the Moabites actually shows that they were hot, that they were, the hot, like they were a hot race, like they were hot. But just because something's hot doesn't mean it's good. Hell is hot. Doesn't mean that you should choose it. Can I get an amen? Yes? Okay. And so they choose these two Moabite women. Then they end up dying. And so now it's just Ruth, Naomi, and Ruth's sister. And they've hit rock bottom again. Famine to famine. And so this is what happens. It's very simple. But then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. Naomi had heard about a place where people were being blessed. I want you to catch this real quick. One of the first things you need to understand about famine is God will use famine to move you. But he also will use blessing to entice you. And so Naomi has this moment and saying, there's nothing here for me, but... I hear that other people are being blessed in this land that we used to live in, Bethlehem, God's land, God's people. And so she brings back these two Moabite girls that are her daughters. But really, in this culture, there is no hope for them. Basically, they can be on the outskirts of a field and pick whatever's left over, but that's it. And for me, I, don't, I need you to hear something real quick. A lot of us get angry at famine. I hate my famine seasons. When I look back at my life, I hated when I was in famine seasons, where seasons where they're just the hardest things on the planet. But here's what I know. I never would be here today without famine moving me to the places I needed to go. I remember being in L.A. I'm 25 years old, single, 
uh, just had broken up with a girl, a relationship ended that I thought I was going to marry. Not only that, my senior pastor ends up going to Colorado. They get an intern pastor in, and in this moment, he is like verbally abusive, throwing me against the wall. You heard, you've heard me talk about this. He told me, hey, if you're sick, come in and puke. I'll send you home. This is the season I'm in at this church. And I, before this moment, I was golfing on Fridays with a senior pastor. I was living life, uh, dating the girl I thought I was going to marry, and all of that within a second, gone. So I'm sitting there in my apartment, and I'm having one of those ugly cries. We're talking like, <laughs> like, you know, like nobody's there. I'm hugging myself, you know, kind of getting awkward. Right? Like, it's going to be okay. You know? So ugly. It's the only time I've ever done in my life. I remember getting out of bed. And I was like, I got to see how I look right now. And I looked at myself in the mirror. I was like, oh, my gosh, it's over. You know, it's one of those moments, okay? Who's ever looked at themselves and they cry? Come on, my people. Nobody raised your hands. Okay, I'm going to put this away. I'm alone. All right. Good talk. Um, I remember praying to the Lord. Well, I'll, I'll go anywhere. I, this, whatever, whatever this is, I know I'm supposed to leave. This is, I'm not supposed to be here, but if you tell me to stay, I'll stay. I just, I'm done, God. I, I need you. It was, it was this famine-type prayer. It was this, this prayer I was just so surrendered. And I'll tell you, when we're comfortable, we don't pray prayers like that. When we're full, we don't say, God, whatever you want to take, whatever you want to move from my life. When we're comfortable, like, oh, don't mess with what's going on right now. But God knows he needs to allow famine sometimes in our life to move us to our promise. Don't get mad at famine. Let it move you. I've had famines in jobs, so God would move me to a new place. I've had famines in relationships, so God would move me to a new relationships. I've had famine in my health, so God would have me change my priorities in my life. Some of you walk in, and your life is just out of order right now, so you maybe have some famine in your health. Some of the famine isn't by God. It's just by your poor decisions. I remember I got up to about 240 pounds. That's heavy for me, okay? I, I'm not in the NFL anymore. I never was. Um, but if I was, I'd probably be 240 pound tied in across the middle catching TDs all day. But the Lord didn't have that in my steps. All good. Um, so I got up to 240, and I was just playing golf. And I'm like 30 years old at this moment. And I just go to chip the ball, and my back goes pop. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Something happened. Call the cops. Call somebody. I was just pain, pain, you know. Couldn't sit in the car and... Again, 30 years old, you shouldn't have your back pop like that. And I go to the doctor, and my doctor, man, he just keeps it real. I was like, what's wrong? He's like, you're overweight. I was like, no, 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 tell me something different. They tell me something, it can't be me. He's like, no, you're overweight. Like, you have too much weight on your body, and you haven't strengthened. Your core is really weak. You need to work out, and you need to lose some weight. Thanks. Have a great day, bro. I want, I just give me a pill, and let me be on my way. A lot of us, we go to God, what's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong, God? And you need to understand something. Famine in this land, or here's why it was happening. There was no regular rain, rainfall happening at this moment. And for you, for you to actually flourish, and maybe why you have famine right now, is not because something crazy happened, it's because you actually don't have a regular relationship with Jesus. Jesus needs to reign in your life daily. There has to be a rhythm in your life. Coming to church is not gonna have you flourish. It's a part of it, but being, being the church, being planted in the church, being a part of the church, serving, giving, giving your life away, that's when your life starts to flourish. So I went on this workout thing. I started working out every day. Got down about 195. My body was feeling great. Now I'm back up to 215. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> but some of you need to change your schedule. It's that simple. reason why there's family, you just need to change your schedule. You need to change your priorities. Let's keep going. So, fam, uh, so famine uh, will cause you to move. So Naomi moves. But then there's a sad moment where Naomi shows up back at her hometown, and people see Naomi coming back. And here's what happens in Ruth 1. She says this. So the two of them continued on their journey. When they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their arrival. Is it Naomi, the woman asked? She goes, don't call me Naomi. 
She responded, instead, call me Mara, for the Almighty has made my life very bitter for me. I went, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? Stop. Naomi means joy, pleasant. Her life is nothing but joy and pleasant. And isn't it funny that she goes, I left full and I came back empty? No, you left because you were empty. You're actually changing. How many of you change the story sometimes to make yourself feel better? A.K.A. Proverbs says, very simple verse, man ruins his life because of his own folly, yet his heart rages against the Lord. Naomi and Elimelech made bad decisions, left the Moab, which they shouldn't have. They lost everything. She comes back. She blames God, doesn't take any responsibility, and she says famine has now renamed her. Famine should move you, but it should not define you. Famine should move you, but it should not define you. And let's, okay, when you read the Bible stories, Abraham was this, and, and, and Jacob was this, and Leah was this. Those are all great things. But when I, I didn't grow up in church, I remember coming to church, being 16, and seeing like a church staff and be like, you don't know what I've been through. You don't know my famine. You don't know the abuse I've had in my home. You don't know the poverty I grew up in. You don't know about food stamps. You don't know about the other colored lunch, uh, lunch ticket that all the kids say, hey, why is your lunch ticket blue and all of ours is red? It's because we got no money. Now back off. I mean, you, you don't know about me. I thought everybody on staff had a perfect, perfect life. Famine moved me to Jesus. It didn't define me. I want to share six different people to you that maybe make it more real than just even the Bible characters of the Bible that are real. We have six people on our staff, and all of us have experienced famine. But you would be hard to guess that we've had that famine because famine did not define us. It just moved us. So Shane, who was playing drums, where's Shane at? Shane in the house? He's watching some games. Okay, cool. That's cool. Okay. 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 We're going to talk on Tuesday, one-on-one. Okay. So Shane, Shane is our production pastor, but something that we call Shane on staff is sunshine. He's just smiley, joyful. Very, very rarely Shane is in a bad mood. He's never really in a bad mood. Now you would guess, oh, Shane, he's so joyful. He must have had the best childhood ever. There, Shane. There you go. Hey, we're going to, hey, thanks for coming to church today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Um, if you actually ask Shane's story, you'll find out that Shane's mom was addicted to meth and she was in and out of prison. That, that Shane's dad's girlfriend is the one that raised him as a kid when she was in prison, in and out. That Shane had the opposite of an ideal childhood, but he found Jesus at a young age and Jesus became the one that shaped his life. Amen. Shane is not defined by his famine. He's actually defined by Jesus. Where's Casey at? Casey, where's Casey at? Casey, come on, Casey. Casey... Casey is a killer. Casey the killer. Uh, she's our church coordinator. Uh, her and Justin just got married. Uh, how, how long are you guys married now? Six months. One of my favorite things about Casey on our staff is uh, if you met Casey, uh, you've been around Casey, she has a phenomenal marriage. She has phenomenal friendships. Uh, Casey's life is flourishing. Like you look at, she's just got, just, it's like, did you just win the lottery? Like what's going on? Like what's your secret? Now, it, geez, Jesus, come on now. This is my sermon, girl. Back off. Okay. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, so, uh, anyways, so if you actually ask Casey her story, you're like, oh, it's because she had a great model of marriage and, and she had all these things when she was a kid. She was set up to win. If you actually knew Casey's story, you would know that her biological father left and then he killed himself. And that her uh, stepfather, that her mom married, was an abusive man. And that she made it out of that family, found the Lord uh, in her late teens, and God has transformed her life unbelievably. Because famine did not define her, it moved her to Jesus. Come on, famine should move you, should not define you. Caleb, where's Caleb at? Caleb, right here. I should just look over here. Okay. 
Or I should look outside for Shane, whatever. Um, <laughs> Caleb, if you know Caleb, we call him the hype guy. Caleb, I just like, woo, you know, like anything like uh like, we, uh, like he even shared a story a few weeks ago when we were in L.A. We were getting donuts, and it was a vegan donut, and you would have thought Caleb won the lottery. He was like, whoa, vegan donuts, whoa. I was like, bro, you got to relax, man, you know. Um, but anything, we go out to lunch. He's like, I love Chipotle. I was like, it's just Chipotle, man. You get him on the platform. He starts talking about Jesus. He's like, oh, Jesus. He's like, man. And so everybody's like, man, where did that guy get that energy, you know. And he's just so joyful. Some of you may not know, but a year ago, we were at a Sunday night service, and we were praying over Caleb. Because the last few years, Caleb and I have known each other since he was in junior high, actually. But the last few years of Caleb's life, he was married to somebody. And for years, he was fighting for it to work. And towards the end of that, no moral failure. All he did was serve, love, and try everything he could. But the person he married decided, no, we're done. And she filed. And I remember being on a couch, sitting with Caleb. And he's bawling, and I'm tearing up. And... At those moments in your life, you're like, is it ever going to get better again? I didn't plan my life this way. And I remember Caleb just telling me just how dark it felt. And I didn't know what to say except, bro, I know it's going to get better. I know it doesn't end this way. And a year later, you would never, ever guess that's what he went through. Because that season does not define Caleb. That famine moved him closer to Jesus than I've ever seen. Caleb, the, the, the man that Caleb has become this last year and over his life, the things that the enemy tried to sock him, no, God used it to refine him. Famine will not name him. No, God will define him. We also have Josh Harper. Josh on our staff. I'm sharing all our staff members. I should ask their permission next time. Whatever. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I, 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 you shared what? I'm kidding. I shared. I, I, asked, I asked everybody on staff their permission. Josh, our children's pastor, which I believe is, he's the best children's pastor on the planet. Can we give it up for all the parents? He's not only is he a phenomenal children's pastor, but he's a great father. He, oh, he's a great dad. He's the best. Oh, he's just, like, if you see him right, he's just got such a joy and a love for his kids. His two kids, Cannon and Berlin, he named his kid Cannon, which is just dangerous. Um, Cannon climbs everything, energy like no other. But if you saw Josh, you're like, oh, the reason why you've got a great marriage and you're a great dad is because you saw a great dad. No, his dad left when he was a kid. But that doesn't define Josh. That family doesn't define him. He learned how to be a great father from the father of all fathers. The Bible says he's the father to the fatherless. My wife, you know, when we, when we uh, uh, worship on a Sunday and I see my wife and the joy that she has and where she's came from, if you knew every trial she's been from, and I can't share all of them, but I will share this, that when uh, Rachel grew up in an Italian family, and she, of course, has her dad, and then she had this uncle who was a second father, vacations, everything, like, was the, the closest to the closest you can be in family, and cancer took him like that in her early 20s. Losing loved ones at, at, at that age in your early 20s when they're way too young, it, you shouldn't experience that stuff. And if you've heard me preach, you know that, you know, I had an abusive father. I uh, grew up on food stamps and didn't know the Lord. And, and again, like, I, I suffered with depression. Uh, suicide was in our family. Uncles were killing themselves. Um, myself, I even uh, processed suicide in my early 20s. All these things. And, I, and now if you met me, you're like, what? That family did not define me. It just moved me to Jesus. And so some of you in the house real quick, don't, don't get angry at your season. Just start moving to the next season. Come on, don't be angry at it. Just start moving. So, so, so Naomi moved. And we don't give her enough credit. She at least moved. 
She's angry. She's renaming herself. But at least she came back to the place she was. So a lot of you are like, oh, I'm not doing enough. Hey, at least you came to church today. At least you came to hear the word of God. That's the beginning of your story going from famine to flourishing. And let's go to the second point. I've only got five more, and I've preached for 30 minutes. This is going to be dangerous. This might be a two-part. We'll see what happens. So don't let uh, famine define you. Next one is Naomi needed a friend. Naomi needed a friend, somebody who would work when she couldn't. Do you know that Jesus is the ultimate friend? Jesus is always working. When things look like they're not working out, Jesus is working. So it's an amazing moment. They're coming back, and uh, it's Ruth 1, verse 7, we look at it. With her two daughters-in-law, she set out from the place where she had been living, and they took the road would lead them back to Judah. But on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back to your mother, uh, mother's home, homes, and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. No, they said, we, we want to go with you. Uh, we want to be with your people. But Naomi replied, why should you go with me? Can I still give birth to the other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters, return to your parents' home, for I am too old to marry again. And even if it were possible and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not, my daughter. Things are far more bitter for me than for you because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. Stop. Very simple. This is what Naomi's doing right now. She's in her life. I quit. I'm done. She's saying to these two girls right here, look at the scoreboard. It's halftime. I'm down 50. You don't want to be on my team. I'm going to lose. My life is marked by loss. You don't want to be with this loser. Get out of here. Look at the scoreboard. I don't know about you, but I, I love, who loves sports? Who hates sports? It's okay. 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 I'm going to use a sport illustration. Is that cool? Okay. Good talk. Um, I love playing sports as a kid because it taught me so much. Last year I was at game six of the, of the uh, Western Conference final against the Rockets. Warriors had to win to go to game seven. And so they were down 15 in the first quarter. 15 in the first quarter. And Rachel looks at me and my, uh, my, my buddy Drew and his wife, they've risen at this time, so we're all sitting there. And they're like, oh, no. You know? and, and Rachel's like, oh, my gosh, they're down 15 in the first quarter. I can't believe this just may not be their year. And I was like, oh, no, this is about to be the, one of the greatest comebacks we've ever seen. We get front row seats. Well, we were up a little higher, but we get front row seats. Uh, about 55 rows, whatever. We, we get 55 row seats to watch one of the better playoff comebacks of all time. I was like, it's not over. It's the first quarter. They're the Warriors. They got Steph. They got the Splash Brothers. We got this. Halftime, we were still down, but only down by a few points. I was like, okay, we got this. We came back to actually win by 15. Crushed them. Down 15, ended with going up 15. I want you to catch this real quick, and I shared this really quickly in our ministry time last week, but I feel like I need to share it for somebody today. It's in Ecclesiastes 3. It talks about seasons. It says, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to tear down, a time to build. There's 28 of these in Ecclesiastes 3 for seasons in your life. But out of those 28, zero of them say, a time to quit. One of my mentors tell me it's always too early to quit. It's never too late to start over again. It's always too early to quit. And what I want to hear this real quick. Do not let a season ruin the rest of the game. Do not let one bad season, one, one bad moment, one thing that marked your life, and if you're a young person that was abused, do not let that one moment define the rest of all your relationships. If you're somebody who's tasted divorce and been betrayed by a spouse, do not let that one moment define the rest of the game. You can actually leave this world up top 15. I crushed life. You're welcome. 
There's something to be said about people who understand that there are gonna be seasons in their life, but you need a friend to work for you when you won't work for yourself. Because in that game, if you knew anything, there was actually, uh, Steph was not hitting, but Clay was hitting like crazy. I, I love that Jesus doesn't leave us. He actually clings to us. And this is what I love, because she says, I quit. I'm done. But Ruth says, well, actually, let's, let's throw uh, Orpah under the bus real quick. So Orpah, the other sister's like, yeah, you're right. I'm out. Good point. <laughs> so there's two sisters. So they're wet together. Orpah's like, okay, bye. You make a great point. I'm going to go back. But then Ruth clung tightly to Naomi, looked Naomi, said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. You should do the same. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Ruth is basically saying, you may be quitting, but I'm not quitting. Ruth is doubling down on Naomi's life. Your goodness, because she's talking about this God, and, and I love what Ruth says. This is her conversion moment right here. She goes, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. There's something that she knew about Naomi and her God that she wanted, that she wouldn't leave her. So she doubled down and said, I'm clinging to you. You can try to get rid of me, but you're not going to get rid of me. She goes on to say, wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death separate us. When Naomi saw Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. Does that sound like anybody to you? Ruth's declaration? Does that sound like anybody else you ever heard of? Ruth leaving her homeland and saying to somebody, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. Jesus is a better Ruth. Because Jesus, in Hebrews, I love it, he says this. A very simple verse, he goes, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence that the Lord is my helper. You need help in life. I need help in life. We are going to have to go through life, and if we actually think we can do it on our own and we should quit, that is the opposite of what a victory looks like. I remember when we were deciding to plant the church in Wallet Creek. I actually almost, literally, these are the place we thought of, like, we should just go to Texas. Because the scoreboard shows us, man, you plant a church and you're just kind of good. People just flood into that place. Stats in the base say eight out of ten uh, fail. I don't like that scoreboard. But then I started thinking the way God would think. Just like the game, hey, we're down 15. We want to better comebacks in playoff history. So then I find out about the barrier. 96% of people don't go to church. Oh, this is the setup for all setups. This is the setup for all revivals of all revivals. And I get to be on the team for this one? So you're saying the first quarter of Mission Church, you can look at the Bay Area, and there are 90% of people right now are doing something else except experiencing the love of Jesus. 90% of people, let's just say what the word says, they're going to hell instead of heaven. They're experiencing bondage and not freedom. They're experiencing curses and not blessing. And you're telling me you called us to be a part of this comeback, Lord? Sign me up. Because he has not given up on this Bay Area. The Bay Area may have said, hey, get out of here. You're done. We've moved on. We're affluent. We got education. We got all this. You can just leave. But Jesus says, I'm never leaving the Bay Area. I will never forsake the Bay Area. I will send my church. I will send Christians, and they will revive it because that's what I do. I'll, I'll take a clap. I, uh, I want to hear this real quick. I, I love the rhythm of God. It's never the capable uh, that he just picks. It's just available. Uh, in church, we believe this. Your best ability is your availability. I don't know. I like skill. I like talent. There's a reason why Rachel won't let me on the worship team. I've tried. Oh, I've tried hard. But if I was, this would be in reckless love. Never ending reckless love of God. You're like, Ugh. I believe we should have skill, okay? 
But, oh, availability. When, when I drive to church, one of the things I just simply say to the Lord, and you may think it's weird, but it's the picture he gave me is, Lord, I'm your donkey. You needed, you needed a donkey to ride into the city with. I'll be your donkey today. I'm available. Use this vessel. Just use me. I'm available. I believe all of us should pray that prayer daily. I'm available today, God. Use me. Use me to change the scoreboard in somebody's life. Use me to be a Ruth to a Naomi this week. When a Naomi quits, say, uh-uh, I'm not giving up on you. You may have given up on yourself, but I haven't given up on you. Next point. Naomi needed to see goodness again. She needed to see goodness again. So, so Ruth goes to work. Ruth goes to work. So in Ruth 2, Ruth goes, hey, can I go actually go get us some food? Naomi goes, go ahead and go. And so she goes to Boaz's field, and Boaz is this rich man, has a field, and, and he walks up, and he sees Ruth. And let's be honest, it sounds like Ruth is attractive. because like, yo, who's the new girl, you know? Like, for all you single guys, when a girl walks into church, like, hey, who's the new girl just walked into church? This is, this is, this is not the first time this has happened, okay? So anyways, so she's, she, he sees Ruth, and they tell Boaz about Ruth and her character. Oh, that's Naomi's daughter. She came back with her. She's helping her. And what's amazing is you need to understand something. A lot of your conversations about your life, you'll not be there actually to hear them. What the father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, what they're talking about you right now, you're not in the room. Because what Boaz goes on to say is, hey, here's what I want you to do. When she's gleaning from the harvest, I want you to leave grain for her to pick up. Goes on to say in this story that she brings back this grain to Naomi. If you actually look at the husk and you actually do the calculations, theologians try to do it, it's around 30 pounds of grain. This is not normal. And I don't know about you, but there's something about our life when God hits the fast forward button in our life where we've been in famine, but then fast forward comes and you start experiencing things you never thought you would experience, that you start experiencing love that you never thought you would experience. And people say, where did you get this grain from? Where did you get this love from? Because here's what Naomi says to Ruth. Because again, it's, it's a terrible moment. She hasn't seen anything. And, and let, let's, let's pick up in uh, uh, Ruth 2, Ruth 2. So Naomi <laughs> sees Ruth and Ruth is basically like, so I was at the fields today, you know, and she's like, where did you get all this stuff from? I, I love what she said. Where did you get all this grain from today? Where did you work? May the Lord bless the one who helped you. So Ruth told her mother-in-law about the man whose field she had worked. She said, the man I worked with today is named Boaz. May the Lord bless him, Naomi told her daughter-in-law. He is showing us his kindness to us as well as to your dead husband. That man is one of our closest relatives, one of our family redeemers. Then Ruth said, what more, uh, what's more, uh, Boaz even told me to come back and stay with his harvesters until the entire harvest is completed. Naomi, I love this. I, I, you got to read text slow sometimes. Good exclamation point. I just picture Naomi as, as she was walking back to Bethlehem as she was at home, sitting there and sulking and hadn't seen any good happen again. And she sees Ruth walk in the door and sees Ruth pour out all this uncommon favor, all this uncommon blessing that she didn't work for, but she got it for some reason. At the very end, it says, good exclamation point. I picture Naomi's face going, good, okay. I'm seeing goodness again. Maybe the scoreboard was wrong. Maybe, just maybe, what I thought my life would be, maybe. She's, got, she's tasting hope for the very first time again. Okay, good. Okay, good. Go back to that place. She goes on to say, she goes, good. Do as he said, my daughter. Stay with his young woman right through the whole harvest. You might be harassed in other fields, but you'll be safe with him. She hopes again. There's something about being around somebody that brings hope back into your life. Even, you need to hear this. Boaz says to his workers, be gentle with her. 
This is a time of judges where rape and killing is very common. They were doing what was pleasing their own sight. They had a generation that raised up that did not know God. And so Ruth is being protected by Boaz. Do you know one of the biggest things that this region needs from you? One of the biggest things. They need to see gentleness from you, and they need to see something that they can get from you without earning it. They need to be able to see, here's a ton of love. Who gave you all that love? Here's a ton of kindness. Who gave you all that kindness? Hey, so, uh, finances. Yo, who gave you those finances? There's this person. His name's Tyler. And he, and he gave me this. Hold on, why? I don't know. It's just that's, that's their church. That's who he is. Okay, good. There's goodness still in the world, maybe. Good, there's, there's somebody who actually is going to help, maybe, still. My life isn't over. Maybe there's more Christians out there. Boaz meant... Strong man. Elimelech, he didn't live up to his name. Meant very, something very similar, but he actually took her to the wrong places. Elimelech almost represents culture. And so she followed the wrong thing, tasted death, and now she's encountering a new thing called Boaz. And Boaz, again, Jesus is a better Boaz. He's the redeemer of all redeemers. And so my question is, sometimes I feel like we always want to be Ruth in this story, but if you've been a Christian for more than 10 years, you better start acting like a Boaz. Stop trying to always be Ruth all the time. you got to graduate. So many people just coming to get and gleam and get things they didn't work for, a.k.a. people showed up at 7 a.m. giving their life away to the church, and year after year you come like, it was good, but I want to go gleam somewhere else because I, I know that they did all the work and I, I liked what I got, but now I'm going to go get something else. No, no, no. If you are called here, you are called to serve here. You're called to be a Boaz here, to be redeemers with us and to point to the redeemer of all redeemers. I feel like I yelled at you. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Just kidding. You better start serving. Just kidding. Okay. Uh, let's keep going. Let's keep going. Uh, next one is uh, Naomi, after she sees the goodness, she goes on to have this, I would say, faith moment. Faith moments usually start with a plan. You start dreaming differently. And so Ruth, um, it's in Ruth 3. It's very simple. But she goes on to say to uh, Ruth, and she starts thinking, okay, timing's lining up. Boaz is single, he's our family redeemer, you're single, he's rich, we're poor, he, he ain't find nobody so, yet, you was pretty, <laughs> okay, we about to do something here, this is looking good, okay? This is a great moment, she's starting to have faith again, because she's starting to see God work in front of her eyes, finally, she's starting to see something come to, to, together. And this is the moment where I believe Naomi goes all in. Naomi goes, okay, chips in the middle, I'm not going to sit here and sulk anymore, I want us to go for it, we're going to swing the bat. So in Ruth 3, she tells Naomi, uh, 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 in Ruth 3, Naomi tells Ruth this, all right, go take a shower because you smell. Okay, so she takes a bath. She goes, put on your best clothes, do your hair. Uh, Boaz is going to be at the threshing floor. I want you to go to Boaz. I want you to sit at his feet, lift up his thing, grab his feet, and then Boaz will tell you what to do. It's kind of a suspect story, to be honest. You're like, what? No father would tell their daughter, okay, go to this guy's house. Just, what do you want? No, that's terrible, Okay. You read theologians, there's a bunch of different views on what's happened in this moment, but they all can agree on this, is that this is an act of basically faith saying, Lord, if this is you, if Boaz is supposed to be our redeemer, if Boaz is supposed to be the person that's going to change my life, I'm going to give my whole life to it. I'm going to give my reputation to it. I'm going to give the risk to it. I'm going to give everything to it, and then I'm going to let the chips fall. And for you, you need to understand something real quick. For Jesus actually to transform your life, 
for him to actually take your whole life and make it everything you're supposed to be, for you to go to a famine, to flourish, here's what you need to do. I'm putting all the chips in the middle, my reputation. I'm putting everything that I am, my name on it. I'm going to do it, and then let's, let, just maybe, if the word of God is true, which it is, my life could be different. And so these are the things I wrote down real quick for you. How can we learn from Naomi going all in? Of course, we're not going to go sit at somebody's feet and say whatever you want. But here's what we are going to do. This season, just maybe, if you want to go family to flourish, start reading your word every day. Five minutes. It's very simple, but as a pastor, i got to say this a lot. We're the most biblically literate generation ever to be in America. Sounds a lot like the book of Judges. You want to have more faith and be encouraged more and see great comebacks? Read the word. You'll get inspired more. You realize that if God can use Abraham, he can use you. You got to read this all in with the word. You got to be all in with prayer. You got to be all in with church. You got to be all in with forgiveness. You got to be all in with love. You got to be all in with serving. You got to be all in with your church. This is how it works. It says this in Psalm 92 13, very simple verse. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of God. Those who attend church will flourish. No, no, no. Those who like church will flourish. No, no, no. Those who kind of do church will flourish. No, that is not the promise from God. The promise is this. If you will come to my feet, not Boaz's, but you will come to the feet of the Savior and you will bow down and worship me. Watch what I'll do in your life. I will take you from famine to flourish. But if you will bow down to other idols, you will experience what Naomi experienced. You'll go to Moab. You'll try every other culture saying, I'll try money. I'll try a job. I'll try a relationship. And what you will experience is famine after famine. Eventually, Learn from Naomi. Don't taste death after death and then finally come to Jesus. Learn from her pain and come to him today. <laughs> Skip that season. That's what's so cool about the word is it actually we can learn from wisdom or pain. I mean, I want to learn from wisdom. I don't want to have to be, I don't want to have this world bring me to my knees. I want my faith in Jesus to bring me to my knees. You're going to about something this week. You're going to about something. You're going to give your life to something. Learn from Naomi and Ruth and give it to the right redeemer, and it's Jesus. Last but not least, I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. I love this. It's the end of it, but Naomi shows it's not over till it's over. It's not over till it's over. So Naomi starts in the very beginning, losing everything. Uh, if you know the, uh, this story, it's one of the more famous Bible stories. If not, I want to kind of give you a little overview. Uh, Boaz, being a man of character, he is. He said, Ruth, I'm down, girl. I'm down. I'm in. But, hey, there are some uh, things that we have to do first to honor this. There's another person that can actually redeem you. He goes through this and this process, and finally they get married, and uh, Boaz and Ruth, they have a kid. It's an amazing moment. And so we're going to pick up right there now. Now, Ruth and Boaz are married, and I, I love how this ends. This is how it ends at Ruth 4. So Boaz took Ruth into his home. She became his wife. And when he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant, and she gave birth to a son. Then the woman uh, of the town said to Naomi, Praise the Lord who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in all of Israel. May restore your youth and care for you in your old age, for he is the son of your daughter-in-law, who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. Naomi took the baby and cuddled him to her breast, and she cared for him as if he were her own. The neighbor woman said, Now at last Naomi has a son again, and they named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse and the grandfather of David. Stop. It's a fascinating statement, but she, they say that Ruth was better than seven sons. It's, a, it's not a phrase we would use today, but what they're saying in that culture is sons, were, sons and husbands were the most valuable thing in this culture. Women were oppressed, not okay, but that's what culture was doing at this time. So sons are where you found your hope. Seven sons, 
That means perfection. Seven represents completion. So he's saying, what the world would have given you, what you wanted from the world, you wanted seven sons to have the perfect outcome for your life. That's not actually what you needed. You didn't need what the world told you what you needed. Ruth is exactly what you need in your life. It says that Ruth was better than seven sons. Go back to Ruth 1, and it says, Naomi says, I left full, and I'm coming back empty. Empty. Ruth is like, I'm right here, Naomi. You ain't coming home empty. I just gave you that speech. Where you die, I die. I'm clinging to you. But some of you, you come into the week, oh, every, I got nothing. And it's just like, nothing? You got I'm right here. I'm Jesus. I literally died on a cross, conquered death, resurrection power. It lives in you. You got nothing? Trust me. You think you need the seven sons of perfect from this world? You need the job promotion? You need that relationship? You think that's what you need? No. You got everything you need, and his name is Jesus. This is the promise from Ruth. This is the story that points to the story. That people would think that they need things from this world to actually get what they're promised. You will not get what you're promised from this world. You'll only get what you're promised from the promise giver. And his name is Jesus. So I just want to conclude with this real quick. It's very simple, very simple. Hebrews 12 has this famous verse that since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses, may we run the race with endurance. Anybody ever ran a marathon? Uh, no, thank you. I feel like that anointing is not on our church. There's like five people. Wisdom is in the house, okay? Anyways, if you like to run, go for it. But I've never ran a marathon for a simple reason. I would fail. I would quit. I would get a taxi or an Uber or a Lyft and I'd be done. Because this is how most marathons work. I've, and I mean, I've seen them on TV, but at the beginning of the marathon, they're like, and everyone's like, oh my gosh, we're gonna go 27 miles. Hey mom, hey dad, you know, like whatever, you know, like your kids are there, okay, I'll see you later. But then by like mile six, you're like, there's a hill. Everybody's running faster than me. I got 21 more miles. <laughs> oh, I hurt my ankle. Sorry, I got to go. And then you just sit down and you're done. That would, that's how I picture out my marathon. I'm just going to be honest. I've had many dreams of that marathon in my life. But if all of y'all were like, hey, we're running a marathon. I'm like, nah, I'm still good. No, we, we ran it last year. And I ran all 27 miles at my pace, and I loved it. It's one of the greatest things I ever did. I'll be honest, some of you, if you told me that, I'd be like, if you did it, I know I could do it. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Hey, only if you can run 27 miles, I know I could run 27 miles. It says you're surrounded by this cloud of witnesses, flawed people that made mistakes. Rahab the prostitute, Leah the ugly girl, Abraham who's too old, Jeremiah who's too young. It says you are surrounded by all these people that never should have been able to run the race. They never should have been able to run the marathon. Be inspired that they could finish it and now you can finish the race. I work out twice a week right now, trying to do five times a week, pray for me. But there's something about who's in the room when I'm working out, how hard I work out. I remember when even Rachel and I were dating, if Rachel was at the gym I was at, or if she wasn't there, she wasn't there, I'd be like, all right, I'm gonna work out quick. Boom, boom, little, little, little bench press, a little bit of running. I'd be like, all right, I did it, I'm out. But if Rachel was in the gym, I'd be like, oh, okay, baby girl's in the gym. All right, put another stack on that, uh, on that, on that bench press. Yeah. She looking? She looking, okay, okay, okay. All right, all right, take that stack off, actually. I'm gonna die, okay, hold on. Uh, let's go. <laughs> ah! 
ah, you know, be done. I'd walk up and like, oh yeah. And then I'd go to triceps and I'd make sure that I'm wearing a tank top. Like, yep, those, yep, that's, yep, that's me, girl. That's me. That's me. My baby girl's in the room. It's going to change the way that I work out. Catch what it says in Hebrews 12. <laughs> we do this. How do you run the race with endurance? The huge crowd that you saw go before you, but we do this because we know somebody's in the room the whole time with us. It says we do this. Oh, we run this race with endurance set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. He is initiating a store in your life. He is perfecting a store in your life. You're not doing it. You just need to have your eyes on the one that is doing it. He goes on to say, and it gets, keeps getting good. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endures the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor besides God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured for sinful people and from sinful people, then you won't become weary and give up. If you wanna be my follower, you must pick up your cross and carry it daily. I want you to catch this real quick. What the author we believe is Paul in this moment, he's what he's saying to us is that when you go to the, the Starbucks or work wherever you're at and you put on the cross that you're supposed to carry, watch how Jesus did it. And hostility came and mocking came, but he kept going. And there's something to be said about watching the King of Kings conquer something because then even when he was on the cross and he was betrayed by people he should never have been betrayed from, all this famine did not define Jesus. Let's get to where it gets good because this, all the stories point to Jesus. Famine did not define Jesus. Famine moved Jesus to die for you and to die for me. And so this famine leads him to a cross because there is this poverty on earth of the kingdom of God. It needs to invade earth. And so he dies on a cross, suffers things that he should have never suffered, but he did it for us. And then he conquers death three days later. And so when I wake up and I complain that I have allergies, when I complain because somebody gossiped about me at church, when I complain that I didn't get what I was supposed to get, Jesus says, don't think about those things. Don't have your eyes on the betrayals of the world. Don't have your eyes on the failures of people. Fix your eyes on what I did because it didn't end on the cross and it's not gonna end on the cross for you either. It's gonna end in victory. When you work out this week, when you live this week, there is somebody in the gym and his name is Jesus. Can you imagine how different you'd love people if you knew that Jesus was watching? Oh, can you imagine how different you would worship if you knew Jesus was watching? Can you imagine the, the desire you would have to live the life God called you to live, to forgive and respond if you knew Jesus was watching? Guess what, he is watching. Let's go from famine to flourish. This region needs the kingdom of God Blessed are those who realize they are poor, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Come on now. Blessed are those who realize they're in famine, because they'll be moved from famine to the kingdom. The kingdom of God, all its inheritance is yours and it's mine. Let's go show people the goodness. Will you bow your heads?